I think we'll get started. Just want to welcome everyone in the room and those watching remotely to our Cancer Center Grand Rounds. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Scott Treedman, who is a radiation oncologist from Providence, Rhode Island. Following his radiation oncology training at the Harvard Joint Center for Radiation Therapy, he pursued a career track in radiation oncology and has maintained a clinical faculty appointment at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown U University. For over 25 years, his practice has consisted of general radiation oncology, patient care, and teaching with a primary focus on genitourinary malignancies. In 2013, Dr. Treedman became involved in radiation oncology infrastructure development projects in sub-Saharan Africa, where there continues to be a critical shortage of radiation therapy departments. His initial involvement consisted of needs assessment, technical planning assistance, and developing workforce training solutions. Subsequently, he also became involved in evidence-based advocacy at the health ministry level for the development of radiotherapy capacity in East Africa. He was a contributor to the recently published World Health Organization list of priority devices for cancer management and also serves as an, on the experts panel for the International Cancer Expert Corps, which enables research to be conducted by and for the benefit of those in health disparities regions. He also continues to serve as a global mentor for the American Society of Clinical Oncology. In 2014, he started working at the Dana-Farber Center for Global Cancer Medicine on oncology infrastructure development projects in both Rwanda and Haiti as senior physician advisor. That's how he and I met through our mutual work with Partners in Health in Rwanda at various conferences. Currently, his multidisciplinary team's efforts direct support to the clinicians providing cancer care in these countries through weekly remote tumor boards, echo telementoring conferences, and various training initiatives. In addition, they continue to support quality assurance initiatives and implementation science research projects in order to validate their clinical efforts. And Dr. Treedman will talk to us a lot more about that today in his talk entitled Oncology Infrastructure Development in Low-Income Countries. He does not have any financial interests. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. And he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So without further ado, Dr. Treedman. Thank you. Does, is this working? One, two, three, yep. This tech-challenged radiation oncologist. Anyway, um, it's wonderful to be here at Dartmouth. Thank you so much for the kind introduction, Dr. Chamberlain. Uh, today I'm going to be talking a little bit about oncology infrastructure development in low-income countries. Uh, most of you will be glad to know this is not a radiation oncology talk, although we'll talk a little bit about radiotherapy at the end. Um, and I'd like to draw from some of our experiences in Rwanda and Haiti. Uh, yesterday, as some of you may know, was World Cancer Day, and I think it's appropriate that we're talking about uh, building infrastructure in low-income countries uh, uh, this week, just because global, globally cancer is a huge problem. It's, it's not just a high-income country problem. It's, a, it's really a problem throughout the developed world. Um, before I get started, I just wanted to say two things. Uh, number one, I just wanted to recognize our colleagues at Dartmouth Oncology who have been very involved in much of the same kinds of projects and work and that, that we are at the Dana-Farber, and it's just really a pleasure working with Dr. Chamberlain and others uh, who are very invested and passionate about this work. The other thing I would uh, just share is that, as we heard, I have no financial conflicts of interest. Uh, maybe, unfortunately, industry has yet to open up their wallets to building cancer care infrastructure in low-resource environments, but I guess we can only hope. So uh, this afternoon, I'm going to be speaking about, first of all, the cancer burden in low-income countries and the factors driving cancer deaths in these countries. Then I'm going to speak a little bit about building infrastructure and the kinds of uh, different considerations that we like to think about. Um, and then I'll draw a little bit from our experience over the last nine or 10 years at the Dana-Farber uh, in our small Center for Global Cancer Medicine and how we try to uh, make some of these changes happen. And then for the last uh, five or 10 minutes, um, I'll tell the story of building radio, radiotherapy capacity 
in Rwanda as kind of a, a model of how things uh, happen in, the, in these countries. So the first question is why uh, should cancer even be a priority in a low-income country? And I think this is actually an excellent question. Uh, it's not totally evident, but uh, the reality is that throughout the low-income world, they're seeing a, a slowly uh, unfolding crisis uh, in which the global cancer burden gets bigger and bigger. And uh, unfortunately, these are the countries uh, that are the least able to cope with this. Um, the WHO predicts that globally cancer is going to grow by about 70% over the next two decades. And by 2032, uh, there'll be 22 million new cases and 13 million deaths per year. So where are these cases happening? Uh, they're happening in the less developed world. Uh, that's the, uh, the orange line that's going upwards. And as you might guess, that these are the countries that are the least able to cope with the burden. They don't have the workforce. They don't have the economic re resources to, to pay for it. And they don't have the physical infrastructure. They don't have the beds, the labs, and everything else. So what are some of the factors that are driving uh, this increased burden? Uh, there are lots of different factors. There's increased life expectancy, uh, and that may be due to improvements in treatment of infectious diseases. There's lower maternal mortality rates. And then there's a whole host of other societal changes that we're seeing dietary changes throughout the low-income world where um, there's increased obesity in many places. There's increased tobacco and alcohol consumption driving certain cancers. And then there are the other factors, environmental factors, uh, gene mutations, and certainly viral illnesses, which play really a huge role in places like sub-Saharan Africa. Um, this next slide looks at mortality projections in, in Kenya, um, looking at non-communicable diseases versus infectious diseases. And, and this is something that's playing out really throughout the entire low-income world. Um, number one, we're seeing um, the, the top bar where uh, total deaths continue to increase. Um, I'm sorry, where the population continues to increase, where communicable disease deaths, which is in red, continues to decrease. And non-communicable diseases continue to take a steep increase, of which cancer is actually a major player, not surprisingly. Interestingly, in Kenya, for the first time in about five years, we expect the non-communicable diseases to surpass the communicable diseases in terms of total cancer deaths. The other thing that I said is that people are living longer in uh, Rwanda and in other parts of the low-income world. And um, this is certainly driving some cancer deaths as people are living into their sixth, seventh, and eighth decades, not things that we would normally think of in places like sub-Saharan Africa. But uh, looking at this graphic uh, over the last 50 years, you see what the life expectancy at birth has been in Rwanda. And it was running in the 40s for, for the first 30 years. Then the genocide happened in 1994 when everything kind of fell apart. And, but really, for the last 20 years, there's been a steady increase in, uh, in the life expectancy, such that for the last 10 years, life expectancies actually increased by a decade in Rwanda. And now it's in the mid-60s. So it's, the, the population is looking very different in these countries. Um, unlike the good news that we heard uh, just a few weeks ago in the United States where uh, cancer death rates seem to be coming down and have been coming down for many years now, uh, that's not the case in low- and middle-income countries. And the, the, the cancer deaths are occurring. Um, uh, about 75% of all cancer deaths are actually occurring in these low- and middle-income countries. So what are some of the factors that are driving cancer deaths in low-income countries? Well, first of all, uh, there are more cancer cases, as we just said. But there's also a tremendous lack of access to care and poverty. So patients may be diagnosed uh, with a cancer, but they're not able to access care. They're often not able to get transportation to access care. Um, patients who are presenting in the places that we work are presenting at a late stage, where about three quarters of patients are presenting with uh, either locally advanced or metastatic disease. Um, this is 
pretty much an exact reverse or flip of what we're seeing in the United States and other high-income countries. Um, there's also a tremendous lack of pretty much all therapies. There's lack of chemotherapy drugs. There's lack of surgical oncology expertise. And certainly there's lack of access to radiotherapy. Um, the patients are also presenting sicker. They have lots of comorbidities. A lot of them are presenting with concomitant infectious diseases that are poorly controlled. Uh, there's a huge percentage of these patients who are presenting with very significant malnutrition. And as we all know, that's not a good recipe for curing uh, patients with cancer. Um, <clears throat> there's also a problem with treatment abandonment. Um, I'm not talking necessarily about doctors abandoning patients. I'm talking about patients abandoning the healthcare systems for a whole myriad of uh, different reasons. This, they can be diagnosed and not follow through. They can get a cycle of chemotherapy or start on a radiotherapy course. And for whatever reason, they don't follow through and, and end up dying of their disease um, in most cases. Um, particularly looking at pediatric populations, this is something that in high-income countries is almost unheard of. Um, it's probably less than 1% of the pediatric cancer cases. But in these low-income countries, it's a, it's a huge problem. Finally, um, treatment toxicity. Uh, remember when we're delivering care or when the clinicians are delivering care in these countries, uh, they're giving chemotherapies and radiotherapies. Um, they don't have all the supportive care that we think is absolutely mandatory. Um, they don't have blood, blood products to support, to support their patients. They may not have antibiotics. They certainly don't have intensive care units, diagnostic imaging, laboratory capacity. So there are lots of different factors. Um, in terms of building infrastructure, um, where do we start? What, what are the things that um, groups like ours think about? We think about, first of all, what is the clinical problem that we're trying to help? We're trying to understand what cancer looks like in these regions. And then we're trying to survey the landscape, trying to understand what resources are available and what um, human resources, what people we can tap to help us. And then we establish priorities. Uh, I'm not talking about just economic priorities, where the money's going, but also clinical priorities, what diseases we're going to um, uh, consider treating. And then the last piece is to implement, to actually do the stuff and innovate, because the way you're going to be doing it does not look necessarily the way it looks in a high-income country. And then finally, validate what you're doing, making sure you're doing the implementation science research to validate that you're moving the needle and that you're actually helping more of these patients than, than hurting. So in terms of defining the clinical problem, excuse my voice, um, how much cancer is there? What types of cancer and what are the most treatable cancers? These are the questions that uh, we ask. And then as a follow-on, uh, what therapies are available that can treat these diseases that we either need to implement or to scale up? But unfortunately, uh, just defining the clinical cancer problem isn't always so easy. In uh, most of the countries that we're talking about, uh, they don't have tumor registries. Only about 15% of countries in Africa and Asia even have a registry. So one thing that we try to do is build registries. Um, the sources that are being used to try to get the data for these uh, uh, cancer registries are often way out of date. And often uh, groups, when they're trying to count cancer in some of these low-income countries, are just extrapolating it from a nearby country or region where they do have data. Often we see a tremendous uh, stigma in many of these low-income countries um, uh, that leads to underreporting, And the end result is that when you don't have good cancer data, it means that the policymakers that make the decisions remain un uninformed. And if they're uninformed, it's probably unlikely that you're going to be able to convince them to support your uh, cancer infrastructure development and, uh, and get what you want. There is data available. Uh, this is actually from the WHO. They come out every three or four years with a Globacan report, which looks at percentages of new cancer cases by type, by country, by region, and sex. 
And although the, the data that they come out with isn't really good granular data, it does put us in the ballpark. And looking at a continent like Africa, we know that things like breast and cervix cancer, prostate cancer, all um, major actors. Um, so we take that information and then we start thinking about what, what's on the ground, what's, what's the landscape look like that we're trying to uh, build upon. And as I said, we need to, uh, first of all, uh, look at what's already there. In some cases, like where we work in Rwanda, um, when we started, there was nothing there. Um, building cancer care in Haiti, where we also work, uh, we, we got involved right after the earthquake in 2010, and pretty much the entire healthcare system was destroyed, but they did have some skilled workforce, and we were able to tap that. Um, the other piece that you need to understand is what the available funding streams look like, um, where are you going to get your money from, uh, is the Ministry of Health going to put up money, um, is there insurance, because many of these low-income countries actually do have um, some insurance plans, but in many cases, like in Rwanda up until recently, they haven't, uh, um, they haven't covered any cancer services. It's really mostly basic primary care. And then you need to understand what the Ministry of Health's commitment level is. And then finally, you need to be able to evaluate the supply chain. You need to understand, are you going to be able to get drugs? Are you going to be able to get lab reagents? Are you going to be able to bring radioactive materials across borders to um, put in your HDR brachytherapy machine? So all of these things are the kinds of things that you need to understand before moving forward. And in order to really get a good view of the country or region where you're working, we generally look at these kind of stratifications. Um, the kind of places that we're working in are really in the basic or limited um, category on the left there, where they have limited surgery, limited chemotherapy, limited pathology, limited surgical oncology expertise, and either no or very little, uh, I'm sorry, very little radiotherapy. So um, the group I work with at Partners in Health likes to talk about the staff, the stuff, the space, and the systems. Uh, Paul Farmer uh, coined uh, this phrase to establish uh, priorities for um, global health development, and, and it actually it, it applies very readily to developing cancer care infrastructure. Um, certainly, kind of at the top of the pyramid, we would include workforce training or um, uh, finding the people to do the job, and that can take years, so you need to think about that very early on. Um, as a, for instance, in Rwanda, um, we knew that we had no radiotherapy. We knew it was years away, but we were at least able to convince uh, the Rwandan health ministry to send um, a junior docs out of country for training, and they spent the last three years training, and now that we do have radiotherapy, those docs are coming home and, and staffing the department. Certainly, I would argue that diagnostics, including uh, laboratory pathology and also uh, radiology are critical to our mission. Um, many of these countries, most of these countries, don't have good pathology labs. And as most of us uh, understand who deal with cancer every day, without good pathologic diagnosis, it's very hard to treat patients. Um, and radiology, in terms of staging, um, certainly that's a critical piece as well. And then you need to decide what types of physical infrastructure in terms of beds and clinics you need to build, um, and you need to be able to staff those so you don't want to overbuild, you don't want to underbuild. Um, and then finally, uh, you need to make decisions in terms of cancers and therapies. What are you going to treat? And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And then finally, um, we're going to talk, uh, I just wanted to mention cancer screening and prevention. This is not something that we're heavily involved in. It's not because we don't see a value in it, just because our group doesn't have the bandwidth to go all in on screening. But what I would say in terms of screening, certainly if you're going to screen for something, you better well have therapies to treat that. So um, if you're going to get screening, do a, set up a PSA screening program for prostate cancer, it might not be the priority screening program you want to set up in a place like uh, East Africa where they have lots of prostate cancer, but they hardly even have the capacity to do prostate biopsies, much less do they have the radiotherapy and urologic oncology expertise. 
So those are all the kind of considerations we're talking about. Um, in terms of setting your clinical priorities, um, I would argue that you really need to think about uh, focusing on um, the most common cancers, the most curable cancers, the cancers that have the most effective, uh, cost-effective therapies, and those that you have the available therapeutic resources. Well, obviously, in the places that we're talking about, there's no cancer that ticks all of these boxes, but there's some that get you a little bit close. Um, we know in um, Africa, at least, uh, there's a tremendous amount of breast cancer. Breast cancer's in pink here, and um, cervix cancer's in red. So that puts us in the ballpark. We know there's prostate cancer. So, in fact, in the countries where we're working, uh, we do tend to prioritize breast and cervix cancer. These are cancers that we see as kind of lower-hanging fruit, where we think we can have a pretty quick impact in terms of uh, managing these diseases and curing some patients. Um, pediatric cancers, uh, they constitute a much lower percentage of cancers, but obviously if you're, if you're curing a child, you're going to give them a lot more years back. Um, there's also the emotional uh, piece, and I, I think that is, is certainly one of the reasons we do it. And then there's palliation. Um, although we often don't have a tremendous amount to offer the patients that we're talking about in places like Haiti and Rwanda, um, just because they're presenting with metastatic disease, certainly we feel a responsibility to at least provide pain care and, at a minimum, some palliative services for them. So with breast cancer, I think you can make a fairly easy case uh, that breast cancer should be a priority. We know in the United States about two women die currently for every 10 who are diagnosed uh, of breast cancer, whereas in Africa, it's seven women dying for every 10 who are newly diagnosed. So we think that with things like earlier screening, with building surgical capacity, um, making sure that the necessary basic chemotherapies and hormonal therapies are available, that we can really um, move the needle on that, certainly. Um, cervix cancer, it's a little bit more challenging as a, as a multimodality disease. We know that about 85% of all cervical cancer is happening in low- and middle-income countries, and that the death rate is actually 18 times higher than it is in high-income countries. But unfortunately, to treat that, you really need to build um, not just your GYN oncology expertise. You need to be able to deliver chemotherapy. You need radiotherapy, certainly for your stage 2 and 3 um, uh, patients. And you need good pathology imaging, the whole package. For pediatric cancer, uh, we know that um, upwards of 80% of all children with cancer uh, are living in low- and middle-income countries. Uh, if you're unlucky and you develop a pediatric cancer, um, the likelihood that you're going to survive five years if you're from a low- or middle-income country um, is very low. Only about 20% will survive, whereas in this country, uh, as many of us uh, recognize, over 80% of these children will live five years. So the real challenge uh, that we have, not only for the pediatric cancers, but also for the adult cancers, is to really define the cancers that are the most cost-effective to treat and that can be managed safely in a low-resource setting with clinicians who have limited clinical expertise. I uh, certainly don't pretend to be a health economist, uh, but I will say that there are certain types of cancers that can be treated, uh, pediatric cancers that can be treated in these environments. In Rwanda, we're treating uh, Burkitt's pediatric Hodgkin's uh, Wilms tumor and ALL in a very rural setting without um, uh, CAT scanners, without a, a lot of the supportive care that we think is absolutely necessary, and we're doing it in a cost-effective way. In fact, um, members of our group just, last, uh, just recently published a, a paper looking at costing, and, and we know things like for Hodgkin's disease, it costs about fifteen or $1,600 a year from start to finish through follow-up to treat these kids, and um, they're curing those patients. There are other diseases on the far right here, things like certain very complex sarcomas, brain tumors, 
that right now, given the level of uh, clinical expertise and the resources that we have available, we really can't um, uh, go all in on at this time. But that's something that certainly in the future uh, hopefully will be a possibility. So I'm going to switch gears and, and also take a swig of water um, and then uh, talk a little bit about the implementation um, piece um, and, and kind of draw from our experience at uh, the Dana-Farber and Partners in Health. Uh, first of all, uh, just who we are at the Dana-Farber, we're, like I said, a very small um, group of people that feel very passionate about this. And our mission is to try to develop sustainable oncology care. We're looking uh, to build uh, capacity in systems and uh, really looking to build not just systems but model systems that hopefully can be uh, replicated elsewhere. And we're trying to support the clinicians on the ground. And as I said, we also are invested in doing uh, the implementation science research. We have uh, lots and lots of partners. Our primary partner is Partners in Health, which was uh, founded 30 years ago by Dr. Farmer and, and Dr. Kim. And they're currently working in uh, 10 countries around the globe, all very low resource environments. Um, they're only doing cancer work in Haiti and Rwanda. And uh, we, we serve to try to provide some uh, clinical oncology expertise to leverage or coerce some members of our institution and others to help us out in these efforts. Um, but they really probably couldn't do the cancer work that they're doing without the help of us and our partners. And certainly, we couldn't be contributing the way we do uh, without them. Um, we also are guests of the um, countries that we're working in. And uh, we always remind ourselves of that. This is their country, their health system, their cancer care system, and we're there as their guests. Um, to make this happen, you know, as the saying goes, it really takes a village. And um, we've been incredibly uh, open to collaborate with other um, academic cancer programs that are interested in getting involved with this work on the long term, including your own here. Um, just to give you a little bit of background of the countries that we're working in, uh, both countries have populations of about 11 or 12 million people. They're both kind of on the far unfavorable end of the human develop, development index as, um, as specified by the UN. Life expectancy in both countries has increased fairly significantly over the last decade or two, and is now in their mid-60s. And uh, a huge percentage of both countries live in re really extreme poverty, uh, um, uh, as, as look, looked upon by, uh, or as defined by a, a bunch of metrics from the World Bank. Um, just to give you a visual of where we work, this is a Marebele in Haiti. It was built uh, as a, a collaboration between Partners in Health and the Haitian Health Ministry um, uh, about six or seven years ago. Uh, it took a few years to kind of uh, get this planned and, and built and up and running after the huge earthquake, which um, uh, killed about 250,000 people and absolutely devastated healthcare in uh, a good chunk of the uh, country. Um, but they're, do it not, they're doing a fair amount of cancer care. They're probably treating about six or 800 patients uh, a year currently. The vast majority are breast cancer patients. They're also um, doing a lot of uh, surgery there. Uh, just this past year, a brand new pathology lab was built. Before that, um, uh, a number of our group were going back and forth with suitcases filled with path slides that we'd bring up to the Brigham and Women's and uh, um, get the pathologist to uh, spend time looking at and, and making diagnosis. Um, but now things are, are running actually very smoothly. Um, this is the Butaro Cancer Center of Excellence, um, which was built uh, in 2011 and opened in 2012. They're currently treating about 1,600 patients. It's in an incredibly rural setting in northern Rwanda, about two hours drive north of the capital, Kigali. Um, after, after a number of years without and, and doing telepathology with, um, with Boston, they now um, have a fully functional um, lab. 
um, for, for pathology processing. In addition, um, uh, they're doing uh, both adult and pediatric uh, cancer treatment. Um, uh, we're not doing everything. There's limited surgery. Um, there's uh, uh, also no CAT scanner, which is a chronic problem. And as I said before, there are certain diseases that we um, can't treat. So the focus of our center is, is on cancer care delivery. Um, a lot of what we do is workforce training, as, a, as I mentioned before, and we're also involved in research. Um, we do do some global advocacy. We're involved in, uh, we have been involved in the WHO essential medicines list, which is um, really uh, kind of a, a key um, piece that these ministries of health use throughout the low-income world in defining um, what medications are actually going to make it onto the formularies uh, in these low-income countries. Um, as as uh, Dr. Chamberlain said, we've also been involved in uh, helping the WHO define some essential technologies for cancer management. Um, the area that we're most involved in is really diagnosis through treatment and follow-up. As I said, we don't do a lot of prevention and screening. This is where we think we can really leverage our expertise. Uh, that being said, we do get involved in some patient education. This, I love this slide. It's, it's from some work that some of the healthcare workers that we work with in Haiti um, do in terms of getting out of the community and, uh, and doing breast cancer screenings. Um, I, I, I have to say the one amazing thing uh, when, when the healthcare workers go out and do this is it's very easy to fill up a, a room of interested people who, who want to take uh, some control of their health care. So in terms of prioritization of care, we try to do some of the things that we were just talking about. We try to prioritize the most common diseases that we see in Haiti and Rwanda. And, and again, while we don't not treat patients with other diseases, certainly there are diseases like um, breast and cervical cancer that we prioritize um, we see a fair amount of head and neck cancers, um, pediatric cancers, and we're looking for cost-effective treatments where we can get the, the biggest bang for our buck and where we can treat patients safely. Um, we spend a lot of effort um, doing quality improvement projects and trying to develop a culture of uh, safety and quality uh, where we're working. Um, and we do a lot of uh, work in, in terms of actually defining the best ways or what we think are the best ways to treat uh, patients in these low-resource environments. So in terms of clinical pathways, we've been doing this for years and um, trying to do very prescriptive clinical pathways just because most of the clinicians who are actually pushing the chemotherapy um, don't have advanced oncology training and really um, need any help that we can give them so we're treating patients in a very consistent manner. Um, we've also worked on a number of different initiatives over the years. I mentioned pathology and telepathology, um, which we see as kind of critical to our mission. Um, telepathology is playing less of a role and is now only being used in Rwanda for um, the really challenging cases. I think we're down to about 10 or 15% of cases. Um, I'll talk at the end about our out-of-country radiotherapy referral program. Um, we've been very involved, especially early on, with developing supply chain, um, although now it, things are running actually reasonably well, and we have fewer and fewer stockouts. Um, a lot of the thanks there goes to um, the, the global health experts at Partners in Health who really know how to make the supply chain happen. And then early on, <clears throat> we're very involved in medical record development and tumor registry development, which as I indicated earlier, is also um, critical to being able to evaluate how you're doing and to data mine. In terms of workforce training, I, I see this as really being perhaps the most critical piece that we're um, contributing um, currently. Um, we have, uh, for years, had lots of medical and pediatric attendings going um, back and forth to the countries where we're working. We've had uh, numerous uh, GYN oncologists and surgical oncologists come in, coming and doing um, specific training initiatives. Um, we also uh, bring lots of docs from the countries where we work into uh, the Longwood area to do observerships for four to eight weeks. So it's really very much a bi-directional thing. 
And um, I would argue that perhaps the most important thing that we've done is, is really focused from the beginning on oncology. Nurse training in uh, Butaro in Rwanda, we've had a nurse on the ground um, uh, continuously uh, since the center opened uh, in 2012 and that are continually involved with training the nurses, um, developing the systems of care, and really making it happen. And I can say the same uh, in uh, Mirabile in Haiti, uh, where they've, they've really contributed in so many different ways. Um, and I, I, I will add, have, have done as much training for the nurses as they have for the uh, physicians. Um, then we've done a lot of one-offs, things like breast core biopsy trainings, um, ultrasound training, pathology technology training, just where we've tried to uh, identify areas and figure out a way that we can um, make a difference. Um, the, the model that we're using in terms of trying to educate the workforce is, is really a twinning model, which is pairing um, academic centers in the U.S. at the Dana-Farber, at Dartmouth, at, at Penn, uh, with the places that we uh, work. Uh, we do a lot of tumor boards uh, remotely. Um, we've been doing that for um, seven or eight years now. Initially, it was uh, getting on cell phones and speaking with the clinicians, having them present cases. Over time, that's evolved into video conferencing. And now, um, uh, this past year, we launched uh, Project Echo, which is really more of a telementoring platform. Um, it looks like uh, an old-fashioned tumor board, um, but it, it's, it follows a very prescribed uh, pathway. It also includes about a 20-minute uh, didactic lecture at the end um, that's relevant to you know, the clinical setting that we're talking about. We also, a number of us, do one-on-one um, -on -one mentoring. I've had a, mentor, a mentee uh, for the last two years in Tanzania who's going into radiotherapy and who actually just finished his training and is coming back to Rwanda. It involves a Skype call and, and uh, going through cases. And um, I, I have to say that a lot of these opportunities, um, the clinicians that we have uh, doing the mentoring learn as much as uh, I think the uh, mentees that we're trying to help. And then there's a whole world of uh, virtual education that uh, a number of people that we work with are exploring, uh, developing e-modules for more formal oncology training um, uh, we're very interested in it in the radiotherapy end because it really lends itself to this remote training. So we can go over not only cases, but we can go over radiation treatment plans and, and, and other pieces. So there's, there's kind of an infinite number of possibilities when you start thinking about it. It doesn't replace you know, a, a, a hands-on clinical training program, but it can go a long way to supplementing what, what they have available. Um, We've been very involved in the implementation science piece um, for, um, for the last 10 years and have produced dozens and dozens of papers. Um, basically, a lot of what we do is not earth-shattering research. It's, it's more a validation that you can you know, treat nephroblastomas in these settings or, or acute leukemias um, in order to show what the cost is of delivering this kind of care and to, to be able to show that you can do it without all of the pieces of supportive care that um, we come to de depend on so, uh, so uh, tremendously in high-income countries. So uh, for the last few minutes, I just wanted basically to tell a story, and that's the story of building radiotherapy uh, access in Rwanda. Um, this is an, another map of the world, and as you probably have already guessed, red is bad. That means there's pretty much uh, little or no access, and in this case, it's access to radiotherapy. Um, and access to radiotherapy is actually very important. Uh, I know a lot of us take it for, for granted, but about 60% of, of uh, cancer cases are going to require radiotherapy at some point in the course of their disease. And if you don't have it, um, you're not going to be able to treat certain diseases. It's very hard uh, to treat cervical cancer, head and neck cancer, and, and many others appropriately without it. So a lot of these patients just end up um, dying of their disease of, with potentially curable disease. So um, if you do the things that we were talking about earlier, uh, first 
surveying the landscape. If, if you look at Africa as a continent, more than half the countries, 29 countries, have no radiotherapy whatsoever. Um, currently, there's about one machine per just under 4 million people. Um, but actually, if you look at the whole central part of the continent, um, there's much, much less than that. Um, often the technology is uh, old, old machines, uh, old brachytherapy, low quality. There's uh, limited brachytherapy, which is absolutely mandatory for treating cervical cancer, and there are few trained specialists. So if you look at where I live, uh, Rhode Island, which yesterday I uh, drove across in about 40 minutes, uh, we have a population of just under a million people. Um, we have 12 state-of-the-art machines. We have uh, more radiotherapists and physicists and technologists than we need. We have servicing that will show up at our door in an hour whenever any of our machines break and, and get it fixed. And we have a very high level of expertise. If you look at the uh, entire circle there that I uh, labeled as East Africa, you have a population that actually is probably well over 410 million people. You also have 12 treatment machines. You have a uh, not particularly well-trained workforce, and you always have problems in terms of, of getting servicing when machines are down. So we were talking about Butaro in Rwanda before, and I would argue that this rural cancer center that treats 18, uh, or 1,600 to 1,800 adult and pediatric cancer cases a year is really a success story for the region because they have um, some chemotherapy, they have some limited uh, surgical oncology, they now have a pathology lab. We do training and we do some of the implementation science research, but in fact, the whole country of Rwanda has had no radiotherapy, and um, many of the patients, the, most of the patients who need radiotherapy don't get it. So um, we recognized this from the get-go, and we knew that we weren't going to be able to build radiotherapy for a long, long time. So um, for the last several years, um, I've been running an out-of-country radiotherapy referral program in conjunction with the folks at Partners in Health where um, for the first several years, we were sending patients to uh, Uganda. And more recently, we've been sending them to uh, Kenya. Um, we're sending only about uh, 150 to 200 cases per year. It's costly. It costs about $4,000 per patient, which may sound like a, a, a bargain in uh, um, the US, but is certainly not a bargain in uh, uh, Rwanda. Um, it fragments their care, their treatment delays, and there are lots and lots of people who are dying waiting for therapy. And this has forced us to make some really tragic clinical choices about who we actually send for radiotherapy. So every month, um, and this is this month's list without the names, um, we have a color-coded list of the 100 or 120 patients um, that need radiotherapy to have a chance of being cured of their cancer. And we go through it, and we color-coded it, to how, how um, we see what their priority level is. Red is high priority. And uh, we look at their performance status, and we choose 12 or 15 patients who get sent on a plane to Nairobi for uh, treatment. So not an ideal situation at all. Um, so often the discussion goes something like this. Do we send the 38-year-old mother of four with a 2B cervical cancer for treatment? Do we send the 49-year-old father of five who provides for his family with a stage three tonsillar cancer, or do we send the young boy with a high-risk stage three Wilms tumor who's already gotten his chemotherapy and nephrectomy, and who may benefit but a lot less than the others with some adjuvant uh, abdominal radiotherapy? So just impossible questions, but um, it just kind of puts this more in a real-life context. So um, we had been sending patients up until 2016 to Uganda. Um, just to give you some idea of what that was all about, um, Uganda is the, the country to the north of Rwanda. It has 44 million people in it. And um, they had one machine, one 20-year-old cobalt machine uh, that had been donated by the Chinese. 
and was treating uh, patients, um, about 100 to 120 patients a day, uh, working 18 to 20 hours a day, day in, day out for years. Um, the source had decayed beyond what it, uh, beyond, well, well beyond uh, what it should have before being replaced. And um, we'd been sending about 200 patients a year there, um, putting them on a 12-hour bus ride through the mountains to get up to Kampala where they were getting their treatment. And then in the spring of 2016, this is actually the machine, it uh, failed spectacularly and died and was not going to get fixed. Um, so all of a sudden, the entire country of Uganda has zero radiotherapy again. Rwanda, it's only hope for those 200 patients a year, also has no radiotherapy access again. Um, Fortunately, actually, this made uh, the international wire surfaces, and the BBC picked it up, and all of a sudden, the story became a major embarrassment for the Ministry of Health in uh, uh, um, Uganda, uh, and they committed um, lots of money to build a four-bunker new department, which has taken a couple of years to build, but finally got built. Um, it also inspired... Rwanda, who uh, we'd been advocating for years and coming up with a plan, um, but they still didn't have the money or the will to do it. And uh, so we'd, we'd gone through this process where we looked at all the core um, components of, of what they would need to do to build their own uh, first department in the country, which is really complicated. Um, it requires all sorts of things like geotechnical uh, surveys and figuring out what, how the electricity is going to look and training people and thinking about um, work with and prioritization of care and all these different staffing issues. But uh, finally, uh, they were prompted to commit, uh, commit some dollars, and they formed a, a public-private partnership. And this is actually uh, the new department uh, that got built. Uh, it took a couple of years, but it was already fast-tracked because a lot of the work uh, we had already done, and they have uh, two linear accelerators, a CT simulator. They don't have brachytherapy, um, but uh, that's hopefully coming before long, uh, and, it, and it really is a huge need. But hopefully within 12 to 18 months, when they're fully operational, uh, they'll be treating 1,200 patients a year. So it's, it doesn't solve the problem. Uh, again, looking at the whole continent of Africa and even Rwanda, the, the needs far exceed what this one department will provide. Um, but the department's built, and it's not going anywhere, and it'll, it'll be there. And hopefully the, the docs who are going to be working in the department um, will be the next generation of trainers for, um, you know, for, the, for the team that will follow. So um, just a few conclusions. First of all, uh, uh, cancer in low-income countries is a big problem. And as we saw at the beginning, it's, it's going to get a lot bigger. Um, building oncology infrastructure requires a strategy, and uh, you need to define the problem. You need to understand the needs, the available resources, and the clinical context that you're working in. You need to establish your priorities, not just your uh, clinical priorities, but your economic priorities, where you're going to put your money. And then you need to implement. You need to innovate. You need to think about doing it in a way that is not necessarily going to look like the way we do it here. And then um, critical component is to validate what you're doing, making sure that what you're doing is helping more people than it's hurting. So that's it. I apologize for my hoarse voice, but I, uh, I, I made it through. Thank you. Are there any questions? Sure. I realize your focus is on therapy rather than prevention, but um, one major uh, anatomical study you point out is cervical cancer. Yeah. And HPV um, vaccination could do wonders. Interesting that you should bring that up because there are prevention programs that are very well suited for these uh, low resource countries where they have a lot of things like cervical cancer. And HP, the HPV vaccination rate in Rwanda currently for 12- and 13-year-old girls actually far exceeds the rate in the United States um, thanks to some very successful implementation programs. And, and I, I, by no means do I uh, dismiss or minimize the importance 
of screening and prevention. Um, I, I think you just have to be careful, like I said, that you're screening for things that you can treat and uh, targeting what, you, what your prevention programs look like. Um, so our hope is, and the people who are doing the prevention programs hope is that in 20 to 30 years, um, you know, you're not going to be seeing, you know, anywhere near the rates of cervical cancer in, in, in these areas. The reason we're not heavily involved in that is because we don't have the money, the bandwidth, the resources, and the expertise. Um, certainly we support it, though. Yes? On the opposite end of the spectrum, um, are the opportunities for palliation in oncology infrastructure or in partnering with broader uh, palliative care services? So, um, we've, been, we've been looking for ways that we can incorporate that, and, and there are actually um, groups that have spent time in places like Rwanda um, working on uh, trying to develop the systems of care. The challenge um, has been is that things have been actually improving at a fairly good clip. And um, it, not that many years ago, and it's still a problem throughout much of the low-income world, but um, it, the problem has just been getting pain medication. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the problem earlier and still is to a certain extent. Um, but now we're looking at ways um, to support people kind of throughout the, the, the continuum of which a lot of that is going to be um, supporting uh, patients in their villages to die um, and, and providing services, making sure they're taken care of, make, making sure their pain is being addressed, and, and hopefully addressing some of the social challenges that are, that are happening. Um, much of that work is not happening in the hospital because patients are coming to the hospital for their interventions, uh, but then uh, you know, they're often going back to their villages to die. The one thing that we're doing, just getting back to the Project Echo, um, the uh, telementoring video platform, um, we, we've been talking uh, uh, to uh, the palliative care team at the Dana-Farber and identified a few individuals who would be very interested in um, working with us on this. And we're, we're going to do a, um, a series of the didactic lectures on, um, uh, on palliative care and, and also patient communication, um, you know, trying to talk about dying with uh, the, the families and the patients just to treat the caregivers um, in the places that we work. So, no, I, I totally agree. It's, it's a huge priority, but uh, one that uh, is very, very difficult to tackle. Mary? Um, so you and I have talked a lot about the widening gap in education and technology in terms of the training specifically, and access to drugs and access to technology, and to the point where the training doesn't really qualify yeah. to practice in both places. Do you think that's best addressed by a global health track within our current system here, or more focused on the systems there and adding in specialist training? I think I think both both would be very helpful, actually, and. It was interesting, uh, last night I uh, um, had dinner with a group including Dr. Zaki and, um, uh, and Dr. Williams uh, to talk about technology in these low-income countries. It's, it, it's not really the first thing you think of in terms of introducing high-tech care to a low-resource environment, but the reality is you really need it. But actually using this technology, it's interesting. The way it's being used is much more akin to the way I was trained on using, in using this technology from the 1980s. So the, the, um, uh, the trainees that are coming out of our programs, you know, for, for them to go and jump into the environments that they'd be working at in these low-income countries, it would be very, very challenging for them because we're used to using things like uh, uh, IMRT, uh, having all sorts of uh, Im image guidance to help us, all the different kind of tools that we use in radiotherapy, and really none of those things are being used um, with any frequency, nor should they probably be used with any frequency because they just don't have uh, the capacity to do that. Um, I would argue that they could help a lot more patients with um, more basic radiotherapy technologies that are simpler to use, where you can get more patients uh, th through, uh, through a treatment course quicker. So I, I, I think actually having, in terms of trainees who are working in these countries, 
they're much better served being uh, trained in the low-income countries that, or the region that they're coming from if they can find good care and having that supplemented by um, uh, high-income countries through you know, different types of twinning uh, uh, arrangements. Um, uh, but I, but I, also, uh, I also think that um, some of the bi-directional learning that happens when you, when you put trainees from, you know, from our country in these environments and having to learn things over and learn it in a very different way, it can be a really incredibly important teaching tool. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, Eric. Can you talk a little bit about um, the standardization of clinical pathways and what you've learned from Rwanda? But I also want to get your take on whether you think the United States and the institutions here should adopt um, prescribed clinical pathways for um, treating cancer. Yes, I think I, th I think we should, you know, with with some leeway in terms of pathways, developing pathways in low resource countries. I think it's absolutely critical, and the the more involved I get, the more I feel that it's it's absolutely essential to the mission because the people who are delivering the care, um, even even the best ones, they don't have what we would consider in a high income country, in in, in almost all cases the kind of broad clinical expertise. They may be extremely competent, good doctors, but they don't have the experience um, that, that, that uh, most of our clinicians are able to get. Um, it just, it's, it's just they don't have the resources. So in terms of clinical pathways, um, we struggled with this a little bit, um, uh, you know, because NCCN was coming out with um, uh, basic uh, clinical pathways. ASCO is doing it, but they didn't necessarily work in settings like Rwanda. We needed more than that. We needed some think, uh, guidelines that were even more prescriptive. Um, and so that's why we came up with our own, and now we're trying to harmonize them, as you, as you know. Um, so I, I, I think that um, is really helpful. I think the clinicians really appreciate that. Um, it's, it's not the end. You know, it's a constantly evolving um, uh, uh, path. The, all of the pathways are constantly evolving. And that's the real challenge, because as new um, uh, uh, therapies come online, you have to adjust. Um, I got very excited. Um, I was talking to some uh, people at the Farber who are all in with clinical pathways and are using all sorts of um, computerized pathways um, uh, to, uh, to determine care, and they're using it at some of the satellites that the uh, Dana-Farber has. And I was thinking, oh, this would be great. But then when I saw what was involved with um, not only developing the pathways, but maintaining the pathways. Um, it's, it's a huge, heavy lift, and it's got to be data-driven, so it requires, you know, in terms of fine-tuning it. Um, but I, I think it's the only way you can deliver uh, care. Um, what's happened in the past and what happens when you look at, you know, the, these low-income regions more broadly is that in a lot of places people are doing some really different stuff. And some really crazy stuff that somebody told them this is what you should do. And, and I think that we have an opportunity now to figure out what's wor what works to validate it and to include it in our pathways. Yes? Well, given the dramatic uh, life expectancy increase in Rwanda, it's not at all surprising that now there's a war on cancer there. Yeah. But, but as we... Uh, Look ahead. I mean, do you think that, you know, given HPV, I guess, uh, and other infectious diseases, might be a fifth of the causes? Is or can we expect to really see huge, huge gains from this program in, in vaccination? That, that well, um, I mean, there there are a number of cancers that are you know that 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 may be amenable to vaccination. So I I, I think. Particularly, particularly in the African continent, I, I saw a figure, I don't have the reference for it, where about a third of, of the cancers are ac actually have a, a, you know, a, a viral connection. Um, so there, I, I think there are certain vaccination programs that really should be pushed, but you know, on a really large scale. Um, and um, I, you know, we're also seeing um, a lot more um, uh, young men with these advanced head and neck cancers. <laughs> You know uh, that, and many of them are uh, likely HPV uh, cancers as well, because 
it's not a smoker drinker population that, that we're seeing them in. It's on cervical cancer. Uh, the, the screening tests are themselves curative. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, when you you mean picking picking them up early, early, with immediate treatment for early disease? That's right. Yeah. I mean, so the the, the emphasis on uh, advanced cancer treatment protocols. Uh, right. I, I can see how it's very important I, I, in, the world, in the first world here, but I don't know. I I think given given the 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 way um, given the amount of poverty and the lack of access to care, it's hard to imagine that at least over the next generation, there's going to be a huge change where all of a sudden those 75% of patients who are presenting with locally advanced or metastatic disease, it's all, all of a sudden going to flip to the way it looks here, where we're seeing 75% with early disease that's potentially curable. It's going to be a process, and it's going to, it's going to have to include all of these pieces. It's going to have to include, you know, screening for diseases like cervix cancer and immediate treatments for the early early cancers. But right now, what's happening is, you know, you're doing these screenings and you're picking up, you know, women with stage two cervix cancers. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 it doesn't look anything like it does does here. It may look more like what it did here back in the '60s, but certainly not what it looks like currently. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for. Uh, joining me today.